Today's podcast is brought to you by Tape Call, a super valuable tool for journalists and professionals looking to record crystal clear calls on their smartphones. We spoke to the folks over at Tape Call and learned that it's actually the number one business app for the iPhone in over 30 countries. Tape Call lets you easily record your incoming and outgoing calls, as well as share your recordings with colleagues, interviewees, and through social media. It's a perfect tool for recording phone interviews. Tape Call keeps people honest and accountable and ensures that you never miss an important detail for a story. Over 3 million professionals, including local news journalists and even CNN producers, trust Tapacall on a day-to-day basis. Visit tapacall.com slash podcast today and experience the easiest, most reliable, and convenient call recording app available. It's All Journalism listeners can get Tapacall at an exclusive 20% off discount by visiting tapacall.com slash podcast. He said straight up, you know, I have different standards than you do for what <laughs> I, I have to put out there. And I also know more like he he says he knows more that verifies that this is actually the case that she had his love child. The problem is we don't know that. I, don't, I haven't seen a birth certificate. I haven't seen I haven't seen any evidence that she gave a child up for adoption, let alone that it was this sitting U.S. senator's child who is in a very con- contested race and who has a lot of people who don't like him who are trying to make sure he doesn't win. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast. And this time we've got sort of a little special treat. <laughs> uh, Julie O'Donohue, our uh, station chief from the New Orleans and uh, hey. Baton Rouge uh, desk is, is actually in studio. She's in town for the holidays, you know, hanging out with her family. And she decided to come by the studio. And we're going to just have a little chat about the work she does for the uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune. Yep. And uh, she also, you live in Baton Rouge and your, your, your primary beat is covering the state house. And I believe that there were a lot of things going on in Louisiana this last mm-hmm. year, uh, yeah. election-wise. So I work for the New Orleans Times, Picayune, and NOLA.com. I primarily cover the state legislature and the um, governor. And we had a governor's race um, this year um, that wrapped up uh, in late November, right before Thanksgiving. And it was surprising because a Democrat won. Um, There aren't that many uh, Democrats in the South. Uh, and I believe John Bell Edwards, who is our Dem- our governor elect, will be the only Democrat Democratic governor in the Deep South. So, so Terry McAuliffe in Virginia is a Democrat, and then the Kentucky just threw out their Democratic governor, but they did have one. Um, but I I, th- I think we are the only Democratic governor in the Deep South. Yeah. Um, so that was surprising. He won pretty handedly, 12 to 13 points. I'm not really sure what the last total was. Um, and uh, and that was um, a surprise. I don't think that anyone would have said, well, anyone outside of his camp would have said six months ago that they thought that he would be the um, governor-elect right now. Um, he was a He's a state rep. So he's he's a very sort of low level state government official. I mean, he doesn't represent that many people. He's a, a Democrat, a white Democrat from a rural part of the state. They're sort of like unicorns. They're kind of dying. So there were a lot of factors that were working against him or so we thought. Um, but he ended up winning. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So at the same time, while this was going on, you had a you had a governor, current governor, who was running for president. Running for president. Yeah, uh, yeah. Our current governor is Bobby Jindal. He was running for president. I have to say, from our standpoint, we just kind of chose to. I I won't say ignore that because we covered it a little bit, but it wasn't our primary responsibility. We have a we had uh, he has retired, but we had a Washington correspondent. Who was doing a little bit of that, but um, and I was doing a little bit of it with my coworker Kevin Litton, um, who also covers the state house. But for the most part, we decided we were going to focus on the governor's because race because there was plenty of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, now, um, who who are the two? Well, 
The last time you were in here, you, you talked a bit about the sort of odd way that, that right. Louisiana does its 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 elections. Right. It, it it's it has to do with it's like a like a big mass primary. Right. right? Yeah. So in Louisiana, um, in the primary, well, what they call the general, but probably what we would consider the primary. Everyone runs against each other in one large group. So like Democrats and Republicans. So we had four major candidates running against each other. We had the Democrat, John Bell Edwards, who won. We had the lieutenant governor, who was a Republican. His name was Jay Darden. We had the uh, public service commissioner. The public service commission kind of regulates utilities and did does stuff like that. Uh, Scott Angel, he was running. And then we had uh, a sitting U.S. senator named David Vitter, um, conservative guy, somewhat like Ted Cruz, running. And they all ran against each other. And if one of them had gotten over 50 percent of the vote, which happens when you have an incumbent, usually, then the election would have been over. Okay, you've gotten 50 percent of the vote. If no one gets 50 percent of the vote, the top two vote getters go into a runoff. And in this case, uh, John Bell, the Democrat, was almost assured to get into the runoff because he, you know, there aren't, well, we didn't think there were that many Democrats in Louisiana, but but you get a solid 30, 35% of the vote that's just yours to have. And so when there were three other Republicans, it's hard for them because they're all duking it out for... sure. For the same for the same pie. space. <laughs> if there had been two Republicans and a Democrat and they were splitting 30, 30, 30, we could have had two Republicans in the runoff. But we had three run three big ones running. Yeah. And and the long and the short of that is John Bell ended up getting 42 percent of the vote. He did. He did really well in the in the primary, much better than Democrats have been doing with white voters in Louisiana for a while. Louisiana has a large black population, so about 30 percent of the electorate is is black. And so um, they tend to vote Democrat. So, you know, sure. But the David Vitter, the U.S. senator who everyone had thought would be the governor and whose strategy, everyone's strategy in this election on the Republican side was get me in a race with the Democrat and I will just kill him because I am the Republican with the R behind my name. So. His strategy for sure, David Vitter's, was I want to be in a runoff with John Bell Edwards because if I'm in a runoff with Scott Angel or Jay Darden, I'm in trouble. And we can talk about why that is. But um, he got he only got like 22 percent of the vote. But he was the the other two split their portion of the vote was smaller. So he he ended up being in the runoff with with John Bell um, and John Bell wanted him in the runoff because John Bell thought either the other two Republicans were were stronger candidates. Um, and the reason David Vitter, well, there are a couple of reasons, but the main reason that he is a vulnerable or was a vulnerable candidate is he was caught up in the D.C. Madam scandal in 2007. Mm-hmm. He never, I guess, directly admitted to seeing prostitutes, but he was found to be in contact with the D.C. madam, and he came out and had a press conference and said he had a serious sin uh, that he committed. And, you know, his wife spoke about leaving their family alone, and then they 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 tried to never speak of it again. And in 2010, he ran for the U.S. Senate again. Uh, this came up, you know, no one... Batted an eye. Batted an eye. <laughs> Well, I mean, people bad and I, but he won pretty handedly. And so I thought I think he thought heading into this gubernatorial election, that was always kind of the, the end game. He wanted to be governor. I think he thought, you know, things would be OK. Yeah. And I imagine in 2010, he, his strategy was to to run against Obama and Obama's policies. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and so yeah. now it's, you know, a few mm-hmm. years later. He's, mm-hmm. he's running for the governor, and I think that was probably part of his strategy this time around. Yeah, it was a big part of his strategy. I a few a few things happened. You know, you have other Republicans in the race, and so he ran uh, as the front runner, which means you don't participate in as many debates. He didn't participate in debates. He tried to. He would he would be upset about this if I said this because there were dozens upon dozens of candidate forums that he did participate in, but many of those were ones where he got the questions in advance sure. and he kind of was able to control at least what was asked of him, if not the other candidates who brought up prostitution a lot. 
But he didn't participate in the debates, and I think that might have backfired on him. We think those things don't matter, but when you're having televised debates and there are three people on stage and two of them are Republicans, you know, it begins, and they're all beating up on you because even John Bell, who wanted him to win <laughs> win on the other side because it was better for John Bell, he, I mean, they all sat up there and, and trashed him. I mean, the other aspect is not, not only do you have this prostitution scandal, he's just not very well liked. He, <laughs> he, he's, he tends to maybe not be very nice or warm to people, I guess would be the better way. And so of saying it. So, you know, people, I don't know that in the inner circle of, of state government that people the the current governor really really doesn't like him i don't know that he was well liked he was well liked by people who like him he's smart very smart and and capable and stuff like that but he he's he's not afraid to say when he doesn't like someone or thinks that they have a dumb opinion and he will say that you know publicly and pretty caustically so he you know I, he he let during the primary people get up on statewide television and just trash him, you know, because he wasn't participating. And I'm not sure that that was like, right in the end, the the right way to go. Yeah. So, so do you think that that was a lot of it was the prostitution scandal and then his lack of warmness and his sort of allowing the the opposition to sort of build up this, you know, paint basically control the narrative of of who he was. Yeah. I mean, I think actually also Citizens United played a role in this. So the PAC that was supporting. So for people who don't know, campaigns uh, in Louisiana and many other places, uh, not everywhere, but many other places in Louisiana, there are contribution limits on on campaigns. So if I'm giving a David Vitter, I can only give twenty five hundred dollars and maybe my spouse can give twenty five hundred dollars, you know, but that but that's it. But with. The Citizens United, the Supreme Court case, not only is it affecting the presidential race and allowing like very wealthy people, basically Citizens United said, well, they're, I'm simplifying this, but there are these groups called PACs and you can give as much money as you want to them because it's a freedom of speech issue, but they can't coordinate directly with a campaign. Right. So, so as we've seen in the presidential race where like, you know, Jeb Bush has raised like a hundred and some million dollars or a PAC supporting Jeb Bush has raised a hundred and some million dollars just to get him elected. We saw that in Louisiana for the first time this year, and it was mostly spurred by David Vitter. He went to the Louisiana Supreme Court or I'm sorry, someone supporting him did and said, we have this PAC. And because of Citizens United, we want state law, the state law that limits how much people can give to be you know, stripped, basically. Mm-hmm. His pack, which was called the Fund for Louisiana's Future, went and fought for the $100,000 cap, I think, to be basically done away with. And, uh, and it was thought at the time, man, he's the only one who can raise that type of money. He's a sitting U.S. senator, you know, sure. whatever. Well, what ended up happening is all these not all these, but a couple of different groups sprung up that just were anti-Vitter groups. They were not interested in, like, supporting John Bell or supporting Jay Darden or supporting... They just popped up <laughs> to raise lots of money, mainly from trial lawyers in the state, to, to bring to light his prostitution scandal on TV. So there was something called the Gumbo Pack that did that and then there was another one that was literally just like this guy's law firm he just went out and created a pack and dumped probably like a million dollars of his own money into running ads uh <laughs> talking about how David Vitter had been seen with prostitutes so in addition to the campaigns attacking him and their own all those candidates had their own packs um John Bell's was more on a positive message for a lot of reasons uh, during the primary. He didn't really, he knew he was getting into the runoff, so he didn't really have to go negative. Sure. But, you know, they had all these people attacking him, so it was kind of funny. I do think prostitution was a big reason, but I think the reason it got out there so much and was up on, you know, we're watching, like, the Alabama-LSU game and there's, like, prostitution ads running is because these groups could raise unlimited amounts of money, and so people who really didn't like him could draw attention to this scandal. 
So and the, but they weren't particularly aligned with any particular candidate. No, they but it was just attack, attack, attack. So that the so that his opponent didn't have to really right. do say anything negative. Just sort of paint himself right. as the, you know, the alternative. Right. They did, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's weird. Um, so. You know, you're you're covering the state house. You're covering the elections. You know, what what was your experiences sort of covering these races? Well, that's interesting because from a journalism perspective, something very interesting happened during the race. So, as I said, David Vitter fairly well admitted that he saw prostitutes um, in 2007 when that came out. Hustler paid a woman in New Orleans to do a spread in their magazine who had said that she had been a prostitute that he had seen and to write about it. I believe Larry Flint at Hustler put the call out and said, if you know of a family values conservative that you know saw a prostitute, this is around D.C. Madam time. I <laughs> want to write about, you know, if you were a prostitute, I, I think he was like, I want to write about this. So and expose these in his mind's hypocrites. So. This woman who had worked as a prostitute in New Orleans came forward and said, I what David Vitter was a client of mine. And um, she told Hustler a story and did a spread for them and got paid a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I don't remember how much she also talked to my newspaper at the time and told a very similar story. Um, she saw him for a few months. He was really cold. There was lots of graphic details about how he disposed of condoms and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it, it was a consistent story between what she told Hustler and what she told our reporters at the time. He's always he's never. Well, in this campaign, he had to direct, address it more directly. So he's never admitted to seeing prostitutes in New Orleans. He's really only, you know, kind uh, of. So he doesn't support local industry is what you're saying. <laughs> right, right. So this so anyways the the I I tell all that backstory to say there was a local blogger there were a number of local bloggers who were looking into trying to find new evidence about him and prostitution mm-hmm. because it was thought for a long time that these old stories weren't going to sink him so we need new information and a blogger in the New Orleans area named Jason Bradbury, who has written about a variety of things. He hooked up with a private investigator who slash bounty hunter who is an ex-cop who was paid by a businessman to work on David Vitter prostitution things. He won't say who paid him, but he tracked down the the prostitute who had come forward, who's changed her name a bunch of times, who who had come forward for Hustler and for us in 2007. He found her, I think, in Texas, um, but maybe in Louisiana. And she was telling a different story that involved having David Vitter's love child, that involved being a kept woman, in the French Quarter, that he was paying her $5,000 a month, that they had had some sort of relationship for years, that he, when she became pregnant with his love child, he had asked her to have an abortion. It was a pretty crazy, crazy yeah. story. Yeah, and the blogger went with the private investigator and video. He's a videographer by trade. That's what he does in his life. Mm-hmm went and interviewed her and put these interviews up um, on his blog saying, you know, David Vitter has a love child and it was given up for adoption. And and here's Wendy Ellis saying all these things. So from a journalism perspective, I'm a member of the mainstream media. That starts posing a problem. You have a blog. This is not, you know, we're not talking about Gawker. This is not someone with a... Huge reach, but nevertheless, someone who has video of a woman saying, David Vitter tried to force me to have an abortion and I had his love child, you know, in the middle of the campaign. And uh, it it was 
a difficult decision to try to figure out what to do with that. People handled it differently in our our market. Because I, I guess I should go back and say her story was highly questionable. Not only was she telling us something completely different than she told us before, no one could ever really tell me, including the blogger himself, who definitely believes her and thinks that she is telling the truth, and says that he's seen other evidence that this child exists, but we have not seen that evidence. No one could ever really tell me, including the private investigator, and I'll speak for myself, that she wasn't paid. So that's a big... Paid by who? By the blogger? By somebody who the, I th- the guy I don't was think the, the investigator? Or? I don't think the blogger has the money to pay her. Sure. But for, for like someone a, like who doesn't like... Or something. Yeah, David Vitter. Right. But she came forward. She had this very believable story and that all came out on a Saturday the Vitter folks were ready for it and distributed a bunch of information to discredit her this story takes another weird turn which I will get to in a minute (laughs) but you know we had to make a decision um, in my newsroom and honestly I wasn't part of the decision I was kind of just the person who would have executed it about whether we are going to cover this or not, do you acknowledge that someone is out there saying these kind of fanciful things? Because there's video of them out there on the Internet. Or do you act like that's not happening because you can't verify that it's happening? Or do you report something and say, this is what is out there and this is right. – but, but we can't verify this. Right. And then try to break it down as these are questionable right. sources. So people handled it very differently. The Alt-Weekly in New Orleans, which is called Gambit, initially reported it and linked out to Jason's blog. And Clancy, who, who along with his wife, runs Gambit, Clancy Dubois, he reported it sort of matter-of-factly and then uh, came back through when the Vitter people got to him and... Um, and sort of qualified a bunch of it. There's, She was in jail during some of this time that she says she had a relationship with him. He was already in Washington. So there's there's reasons to have doubts other than the, you know. Um, we and the other major newspaper, I'm sorry, the other two major newspapers in New Orleans, Gannett owns a bunch of, I'm sorry, not in New Orleans, in Louisiana. Gannett owns a bunch of papers, smaller papers around the state, they didn't do anything about it. The Advocate, which is in Baton Rouge primarily, but also in New Orleans and Lafayette, didn't didn't report on it. And then we didn't report on it until then you get a situation where we were trying to discuss what happens if one of these groups pulls this video and puts it up in an ad. What happens with one of these if one of these groups and this is what happened. What happens if a candidate brings it up in a debate? Mm-hmm. Which is what happened. A candidate didn't bring up the pregnancy directly, but said, you guys should go to AmericanZombie.com and look at this stuff about David Vitter. He brought it up in the final debate. And at that point, we I actually wasn't writing about that debate. My coworker Kevin was. But Kevin put the information at the bottom of a story with and didn't link out to it, kind of referenced the website. Our competitor put the information at the top of the story and, like, kind of went into it. But our our competitor also had someone on David Bitter and prostitution stuff, I think mostly full-time, this um, investigative reporter, and he couldn't verify anything. So, I mean, that is an interesting journalism question. When something's not true and it's pretty explosive, like even just talking about him having a love child with a prostitute is pretty. Well, it's so weird because in and of itself, whether it's true or not, it's part of the the political dialogue that's going on. And it, you know, his campaign's going to have to react and the other campaigns are going to have to react. Mm-hmm. And then so then, you know, if you're a journalist and you can't verify the veracity mm-hmm. of this accusation, I mean, how do you play it? I mean – do you again it's an element of the of the debate and an right. element of the discussion you know how do you ethically reference it or i mean you can't ignore it because right. it is part of what everybody's right. focused on and in so much of the dialogue i mean you know i guess 
from a journalist's perspective, perspective in, a, in, a, in an ideal situation, you would put all your resources into verifying the, right. the whether it's true or not, and then you know explain it as cl- clearly as, as possible what you can, you can't verify. Right. And then, but then you know you could write because of the way things are now in the political the political debate is you, you're ending up writing stories about. You're ending up writing stories about not the actual thing, but of the reaction to the thing and how people are are right. are, are spinning it or not spinning it or, or what impact right. it's going to have. And so all this, you're you're generations away from the actual truth, whatever the truth is right. of of the story. Right. I would say what we did was when it came up, we covered it. There's most of the mainstream media, and I'm including local TV in that, and the student newspaper at LSU, for that matter. (laughs) When it came up, we covered it. In our case, when it came up, we covered it, but we didn't didn't bring it up pretty much otherwise. This specific thing, not prostitution, which which we know, you know, well, we don't know, but... Strongly suspect. (laughs) Right. I, I think the... I, and and the AP, I'm sorry, there are other, you know, New York Times, AP, there are other entities that were covering it that 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 handled the AP, I think, when they wrote that debate story where the other candidate brought it up, completely ignored it. I mean, decided internally that they weren't going to write about it. So we had three, the three main entities who covered the debate from a print perspective, the advocate the Times Picune and the AP all handled it differently. We put it at the bottom of the story. The advocate put that incident at the top of the story. The AP chose to act like it didn't happen. So, well, what do the what do the public think? I mean, it was it was a general sense that the public. I, I don't think there's like, a sense that the public really knew that this happened. The chattering class knew. I think people. <laughs> the chattering think, class. That's yeah, us. The the yeah. I mean, the political class knew, and that depending on which side of the issue you were kind of shaped at least the response I was getting. So my paper had endorsed David Vitter, which I didn't have anything to do with as a reporter. You know, I'm not on the editorial board. I didn't even know until the editorial came out. But when we weren't covering this, it was like I, you know, a tsunami of anger at me on Twitter about how I must not be covering it because we endorsed him. The advocate doesn't endorse people, but they got similar angry responses. And then one of the advocate reporters was talking a lot to Jason Bradbury, who's the blogger who put this up out there. And uh, when they ended up not covering it, I get the sense that people who knew that this reporter was talking to this blogger a lot about this story got very upset, you know, that he they didn't pick up the story, you know, um, very, very upset. So it's hard to explain to people, you know. I mean, Jason Bradbury, who put the information out there, I, I talked to him. For a long time, he had been working on this stuff for years, literally years, trying to find more information about Vitter and and prostitutes. And he said straight up, you know, I have different standards than you do for what (laughs) I I have to put out there. And I also know more like he he says he knows more that verifies that this is actually the case that she had his love child. The problem is we don't know that. I don't I haven't seen a birth certificate. I haven't seen I haven't seen any evidence that she gave a child up for adoption, let alone that it was this sitting US senator's child who is in a very con- contested race and who has a lot of people who don't like him who are trying to make sure he doesn't win. So yeah, I mean if you're you're a blogger and you're your reason for you're doing things is trying to verify whether a person is, is, you know, employed prostitutes and has a history of it. And you're actively going out and trying to find that evidence, you know, like it or not, that's, that person is, has made a decision about the veracity or, or lack right. of veracity about what they're looking for. Right. Yeah. Um, that, whereas you as a, 
representative of the quote unquote mainstream media, you know, you, your, your job isn't out there to go and say, well, I want to go see if I can find this evidence to prove it. I mean, I, obviously you want to find the truth of whatever the, the story is. And, you know, if you can prove this, I mean, but that, but that shouldn't be your, 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 your only driving thing. You have uh, so many other considerations in covering an election story. Right. So it's not clear how much of the public knew about that specific thing. He got asked about it a couple of times during the runoff on TV, like about eight, I'm thinking of one New Orleans station. He did a live interview and they asked about this, you know, pregnancy prostitute story. And I, I, I'm sure there are other cases, but there wasn't like I think, honestly, this is somewhat of the power of the still of the mainstream media because the mainstream media largely didn't pick it up. I think that a lot of the packs that would have run ads alluding to this couldn't or didn't. Even though you're allowed to say a lot of things about a public official or a public person, which certainly an elected official who's in the U.S. Senate is, um, there are some limits to what broadcast will do or a TV station will allow you to run. Um, so they... Most of the prostitution ads that we saw in the runoff when it was just the Democrat and David Vitter did not reference this these new allegations. They've, they focused on the previous allegations or, for example, John Bell Edwards ran an ad. He's a West Point grad and um, a vet, and uh, he ran an ad talking about how, you know, he, you know, jumped out of planes but David Vitter, who may or may not have been on the phone at some some point during a day when he was supposed to take a vote on veterans issues, he was maybe his phone records show he was calling the D.C. madam. So that's like a new angle to a old story. Right. But they didn't really go there with the pregnancy and the adoption stuff. They also didn't have to. I mean, they were they right. were in a pretty good position cuz a lot of damage had been done to him. So, so so let's talk about I mean, the election occurs, the the runoff occurs and then there's this what what a lot of people call an an upset. So what 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 impact does that have from a journal? No. Yeah, I mean Yeah. Well, uh, I were mean, you were you surprised? I wasn't surprised by the time the election happened, although I still so, you know, we can also talk about polling. You know, I don't like covering polls. I'm sure a lot of political people do. I just it's frustrating because you don't know how reliable they are. Now, in this case, we were lucky because we every poll that came out showed John Bell ahead. And initially, when those were happening in September, it was like, uh, this is an anomaly. People are going to realize he's a Democrat and they're going to. I mean, I had a legislator who told me he kept hearing, oh, I really like that John Bell Edwards guy. John Bell ran a great campaign. He was relative. He was totally unknown to most of the state. He ran a great campaign where he did lots of ads highlighting his military service, you know, West Point grad. His dad is a it was a sheriff. His brother's now the sheriff. He did a absolutely one of the best political ads I've ever seen. He's um, against abortion, and he did this ad featuring his wife, where she talked about how their their first child was born with spina bifida, and they were advised to terminate the pregnancy, and that they were devastated, but they are really religious people and they they were ne- were never going to opt for an abortion and now their daughter's getting married and she's engaged and you know it was like a very wonderfully constructed ad that I'm sure made people cry um, Louisiana is very Catholic uh, you know I, I think that that he had a real home run with that one in presenting himself as Yes, I'm a Democrat, but I'm I'm conservative and I have values like yours. <laughs> yeah, that, and that may be something that a lot of people who, especially maybe people who are outside our country, who they think Republicans, Democrats, they think that if you look at the national right. stage, that that means one thing. But, you know, right. you and I kn- knew this from when we were in, we were covering Northern Virginia and the state of Virginia, that, you know, Southern Democrats are very different than Democrats <laughs> right. around. The, the, right. the, the D doesn't mean quite the same thing <laughs> right. as, it, as it does in Massachusetts right. and Minnesota. Yeah. 
so yeah, so um, I I think that one of the thing is, things are you know the, a lot of people do a lot of polling, but there are standards, um, and I personally would like to go by. And I've had different bosses who have had different opinions about this. I would like to go by. There are po- pointer in the New York Times has standards about polls that they'll run, not in the aggregate. I'm not talking about like five thirty eight Nate Silver using an algorithm to look at all the polls and weighting all of them and kind of coming up with, okay, this is what they're all saying on mass. Sort of like a weatherman. Right. Yeah. Um, it's very hard when you're presented with an individual poll and you're like, this poll shows a Democrat who we didn't think would ever win statewide in Louisiana again ahead by 15 points. Do I believe this poll? And so I really think that newsrooms have to have a standard going into an election. Like, what are we going to run in terms of polls as standalone stories? And in our case, it was like we wanted it to be a media poll or or a poll by a university, basically. Because usually other private polls, and there are tons, are being paid for by some interested party, either a campaign or sometimes it's just like a group of wealthy people who are trying to figure out who they want to give money to. Mm-hmm. But you don't really know what those people's motivations are. Are they, you know, whatever. Or if you're just relying on their interpretation of what this this poll says. Right. So in this case, by the time the election happened, I, I wasn't surprised. I don't think anyone was surprised because John Bell literally in every poll that happened during the runoff, regardless of which entity it was, as far as we could tell, was leading. But in the primary, I have to admit that I saw a lot of those polls and I was like, what is going on here, you know? (laughs) And then we had experts at LSU and elsewhere um, telling us, you know, look, um, polls about elections months out can't really tell you what's going to happen, especially when it's this type of thing, because people will flirt with the Democrat because they don't really like the Republican. But at the end of the day, what people told me was they'll come home. They'll be like, hey, I'm in the voting booth and uh, I don't, you know, I can't bring myself to vote for Democrat. And he's not getting hammered because the Republicans are all trying to vie for that second spot. So no one's like Obama, Obama, John Bell Edwards, Obama, which actually there was like a whole website set up called John Bell Edwards Obama. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think that that is a difficult question. As I said, the New York times and pointer have standards. They're very high standards. The poll has to like include cell phones. You know, the poll has to, uh, include live people. They won't run a robo poll. The poll has to, you know, there are a lot of things like whereas someone like Nate Silver, who has a skill set that I wish I had, but I don't have, um, he has the ability to wait like a robocall poll, which is traditionally considered a lot less reliable, kind of figure out how that waits and how often is this relevant. And maybe four days out from the election, a robocall poll actually isn't all that inaccurate, but, you Mm -hmm. know, a few months out. So that was a struggle. I had competitors who were running posts that got a lot of traffic that said, you know, John Bell Edwards is way ahead. We had one group of businessmen that really wanted Scott Angel to win. And so they were always their pollster wouldn't release his cross tabs all the time. And um, like he wouldn't show us all the questions he asked in the poll and stuff because they didn't want because they were a private group and they didn't want that out there. And Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a question, like, on a weekly basis, people are going to click on a story about a poll, Uh especially one that shows a Democrat far ahead, because it's like, what? You know, but... Because that's unusual. But should you run that if you think that the poll is not accurate? Now, I would say no. Some other people, and I think that there's a legitimate reason to think this, would say, well, if I wrote a story and I qualify it and I tell people, like, look, this is an internet poll or what, you know, then why shouldn't I be able to run it? So. Yeah, the, th- the thing I hate about um, a lot of political coverage during elections is it's very much like, like sports coverage. Yeah. That they're really, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the only story is, is game day. What, you know, who, who right. wins, who loses. But then you have all these other days that you have to cover things. And mm-hmm. so you're constantly trying to predict 
you know, oh, is, is, is this, you know, is this person injured? Is this, mm-hmm. you know, how, you know, what decision is going to happen because this happened last week? And, you know, there's so much of that go- that goes on in the political arena mm-hmm. where, you know, the journalist is, is going out there and they're trying to, you know, well, what's, well, you know, you're the political reporter, you know, what are you covering today when there is no news? I mean, well, maybe you do turn to a poll and said, ah, oh, this poll is telling us something completely mm-hmm. different. Then it's like, well, do you cover it just because it's the only piece of news that you got? I mean, just because covering it gives it greater weight. Right. Yeah. I I don't know. And people have different audiences. We have a, a local political publication called Law Politics in Louisiana. And uh, Jeremy's audience, uh, Jeremy Alford runs it. He's great. His audience understands polling better than my audience does. So, you know. His audience has more of an idea of like what this actually means in September than my audience does, you know. That yeah, I mean it's a difficult it's a difficult question and and I know that pollsters uh I will say like high level pollsters who do this, you know, really regularly. I mean, I'm not talking anyone at Gallup, but I'm, you know, people in Louisiana who are like have been doing this for a long time, they are very frustrated with the media and how polls are covered because they feel like people aren't don't really understand what they're looking at it is is the long and the short of it. So but, you know, I I do think that there's so I come down the more conservative side. I do think there's a really legitimate argument that says this information is out there. We've got, I, I talked about one blog, but we got a, a blog called The Hayride that is a conservative blog that like almost everyone in the political realm goes to. The information is also out there. Like just because you and then this is a new media problem or, or struggle, you're in the mainstream media just because you ignore something doesn't mean other people aren't right. writing about it. It's going to have an impact right. in some way, yeah. part of the discussion. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, you, we're not the gatekeepers. <laughs> so, no, we're not. We're not, right. we're not the gatekeepers. And, and that's a good thing, you know, I think. I do, too. But, and, yeah. but, it's, but it, part of our role is to, you know, sift through all of the different voices that are out there and try to come up with the, the, um, the legitimate truth, whatever that is, and, mm-hmm. and deliver it and, and message to, to, to your, your readers and, and, and be a source where they can trust you that you're not just a shill mm-hmm. for one particular party or, or bent. Now that the, the election's over and you're going to have a new governor, where do you, what do you see the big issues coming up in, in Louisiana politics? Oh, gosh. Well, there are a couple things. Our state is in a financial crisis. Louisiana and Kansas and probably Illinois, Kansas and Louisiana for similar reasons, Illinois for its own special reasons, are are in financial situations that are like I, I my understanding is the worst in the country. Certainly Kansas and Louisiana are. I think Illinois is perpetually kind of in a bad way. A lot of that has to do with, well, various various things, but kind of a bunch of things happen at once. Our, our governor did a lot of funny things to keep the budget afloat without having to drastically cut services or raise revenue because he had been planning to run for president for a long time. So I know to outside people, he was like this minor candidate, but he did a lot of things in the state to prepare for running for president, including not considering raising taxes even when we were facing sort of the closure of universities and stuff last year. Um, He sold off some state property to help cover our basic bills. He uh, drained some trust funds. So like the trust fund that helps state employee insurance kind of become solvent, you know, got drained to help cover budget, budget problems in other ways. So, we're kind of at the end of the rope there. We uh, don't have any money in Louisiana, and uh, there are going to be some really tough decisions. In fact, we don't have any money right now. Like, we've had the fiscal year started in July. We've had two budget shortfalls in the current fiscal wow. year. And oh, I'm sorry. I should also say out of control of any of the governor or any other politician is that oil prices, Louisiana, when the oil market tanks— it's really bad for our state. So, you know, it's kind of both of those things coming together are not helping us. So we have um, the new governor is going to come in and it's 
there's some serious problems. Um, we have to have a special session um, before we go into our regular legislative session just to deal with, probably just to deal with the current fiscal shortfall. Like, how are we going to make the books work by June 30th? They they had a $500 million problem already that they resolved, but not really. And we have a huge me- shortfall in Medicaid. There are just more people using Medicaid. We We don't have Medicaid expansion yet. That's a big change. Our new governor, that's the other thing I was going to get to. One will be just fiscal issues in there. Our new governor campaigned on Medicaid expansion, and and that's happening. So that'll be a huge uh, issue. I think that even the conservative Louisiana legislature is on board to do that. I think most states are. I know Virginia's not done it yet, but it's a lot of money that you're leaving on the table. And um, in our case, we have a poor state. So there are a lot of services that we, medical services that the state provides because people just don't have insurance, you know, that Medicaid expansion would, would help, help cover the cost for. And it's just, it's so much money to leave on the table. So, and, and our governor believes that's the right thing to do. It's, it's something he has always believed in. He's been in the legislature for a long time. So, but yeah, we have a lot of financial issues, really bad financial issues. We already have like a maybe as much as a $2 billion shortfall in the budget next year because our governor, again, was using all this kind of, he'd find extra fun, extra funds in the like, you know, clean hunting areas, you know, extra money in these like little funds where he was kind of pulling from wherever he could the couch cushions basically to to help keep the budget afloat but now we can't do that anymore so now we're really faced with some you're forced to make some uh, some hard choices yeah sadly but from a from a journalistic perspective you'll you'll have plenty of things to write (laughs) about sadly but uh it sounds uh pretty fascinating now that you you're not covering the election and now you get to actually uh, get back into the state house. This has been great, and uh, I'm glad you came in. and We had a chance to get caught up and and and, and talk about uh, Louisiana politics. How can, where can people find your your stories online? Yeah, um, so uh, our website, our company's name is nola dot com. You can go there to find stuff. My Twitter handle is js o'donohue, so that's j s o d o n. O-G-H-U-E. I tweet a lot. <laughs> Are, is um, that unusual for the state house down there? It was. Covers. When I first got there, so for for journalists who are not in sports or politics, we tweet a lot, uh, especially if you're like a beat reporter. Mm-hmm. So it was for a, it was for a, a, a little bit when I got down there. I, I, it was kind of surprising. I got down there and the AP reporter tweeted, um, but I, you, y'all may know other AP reporters. They are very, they're they they sort of are very direct in their tweeting. I guess would be the way I would put it. Sure. There's not a whole lot of color, just like the AP. There's not a whole lot of color. It's it's very, um, there there you you better be tweeting something that's right. I don't want anyone to think I'm not tweeting something that's right. But they're they have very strict rules about sure what they can do on social media. Um, so the AP reporter was tweeting and the and and is a good friend of me, mine and a good person to follow. She was tweeting. There was one person in the advocate office that was tweeting. Now that's, that's very much changed. Everyone at the, uh, my competitor was forced to get on, on Twitter <laughs> and they had a new staffer come in who is a, a very prolific, just social media person in general and had come from a bigger had come from Missouri and just had a different approach. But yeah, I I think now it is. And I would say we have more, I I worked in Virginia with Mike and uh, we were, Louisiana was a little bit behind, but now we have more elected officials who are also on Twitter. I mean, for a while that was also another you know, it's funny because we think there's this whole conversation going on, particularly during session. You're tweeting all day about what's happening. But then the people we cover, not, you know, they're not in that conversation. Well, now it's a little different. 
especially in the House. Uh, like a few of the conservative House members got on Twitter and have started telling other House members about what is being said on Twitter. And so there we've got more people on. And I will say this. I hope they don't get mad at me. A lot of state government workers have gotten on Twitter in the last people who work in the Capitol. Oh, people who are not elected. Maybe right. So I suspect at the U.S. Capitol that like every every staff member is on Twitter. That was not true in Louisiana until recently. They don't tend to tweet but they are definitely following you because I work in the Capitol. My office is in the Capitol and they will come in like if I tweet about not having an umbrella and it raining, they will like come and <laughs> say something about it. But I think that that's all catching on a lot more down there. You know, we're talking about people who tend to be older, elected mm-hmm. officials or not, young guns, and also people who e- even in the Capitol, a lot of people who just tend to tend to be older but they yeah they it's i think i find with sports and politics is very similar you're tweeting pretty much all the time you know i don't know how helpful that is and i definitely have friends who have hidden me because they don't need that in their feed all day but you know so okay well i follow you so it's always (laughs) always cool to to see what you got going on so again thanks for coming in it's always great to see and, and talk to you about the the wonderful world of uh, Louisiana politics. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. This week's podcast was produced by Michael O'Connell, Amber Healy, and Nicole O'Grisco. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also subscribe to It's All Journalism on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spreaker. Today's podcast is brought to you by Tapacall, a super valuable tool for journalists and professionals looking to record crystal clear calls on their smartphones. We spoke to the folks over at Tapacall and learned that it's actually the number one business app for the iPhone in over 30 countries. Tapacall lets you easily record your incoming and outgoing calls, as well as share your recordings with colleagues, interviewees, and through social media. It's a perfect tool for recording phone interviews. Tapacall keeps people honest and accountable and ensures that you never miss an important detail for a story. Over 3 million professionals, including local news journalists and even CNN producers, trust Tapacall on a day-to-day basis. Visit tapacall.com slash podcast today and experience the easiest, most reliable, and convenient call recording app available. It's All Journalism listeners can get Tapacall at an exclusive 20% off discount by visiting tapacall.com slash podcast. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. It's All Journalism is also a member of the DC Podcasters community. Look for us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.